The time is 1807, and two of the major powers of the world are locked in deadly combat. The two protagonists are England and France. This excursion in history, then, deals with the battle between these titans of the 1800s and how this battle between the tiger Napoleon and the shark England involved a country whose main desire was to remain neutral. This story is the story of one of the incidents that led to the United States' involvement in the War of 1812. One of the main causes for the United States' involvement in the War of 1812 was the fact that we felt that our rights as a neutral were being violated by the British, especially on the high seas. England had a policy of impressment for manning British ships of the line. If the British Navy needed a sailor, they would simply take one off an American vessel and put him in the British Navy. It made no difference to the British that these men were American citizens. As far as England was concerned, she was engaged in a life and death struggle with Napoleon, and she was not going to quibble with a man claiming to be an American citizen. They felt that once he was an Englishman, and once an Englishman, always an Englishman. The British rarely listened to the protests of the unfortunates they had seized off the American vessels. Their main object in this crisis was to man ships, and if the Americans were abused in the circumstances, well, that was just too bad. When the United States government protested to England about the boarding of her ships on the high seas as violation of rights of neutrals, the British just brushed these protests aside as mere impertinence. One such case of the violation of the American rights as a neutral came with the British firing on a United States frigate the USS Chesapeake. Just why did the British fire on a ship of a neutral country? For the beginning of this story, we go back to about the year 1805. It was in that year that His Majesty's ship Melumpus stopped an American merchant vessel and impressed four men off the American vessel into the British Navy. These four men were William Ware, Daniel Martin, John Strahan, and John Little. For about a year and a half, they served on this British ship because they had no choice. But in the year 1807, when the British ship Malumpus dropped anchor in Boston Harbor to pick up fresh supplies for their ship, these four men went over the side and deserted the British Navy. They deserted a Navy from which they had no choice in joining. These four men have done a very brave thing. To jump ship means that they will now be classified as British deserters. And if they are ever caught on the high seas by another British ship, they could be punished for desertion. One must remember that these men only knew one way to earn a living, and that way was by the sea. They knew how to sail ships and nothing else. Where else could they now find a job? Where would they be safe from the British? 
Since the British have only stopped innocent United States merchant ships on the high seas and impressed men off of them, wouldn't the United States Navy be a safe place to serve? The British have never stopped and impressed men off an armed American vessel. Certainly, this would be the place that they could earn a living and be safe from the British. So in June of 1807, these four men signed aboard the United States frigate Chesapeake, which was preparing to sail for the Mediterranean Sea. Somehow the British found out that these four Americans, who had jumped ship in Boston, were now signed aboard the Chesapeake. The British could not allow this to happen. If they allowed it to happen once, they would have men deserting their navy all the time. No, the British would have to have these men back and make an example of them. They would have to punish these deserters to show the other men of the British Navy what would happen to them if they deserted. The British commander for the British fleet stationed in the Western Hemisphere at this time was Vice Admiral Berkeley. Once he found out that these four men had signed on with the USS Chesapeake, he wrote a letter to the United States Secretary of the Navy, Mr. Robert Smith. In his letter to Secretary of the Navy Smith, he requested that the United States take what he called four British deserters off the USS Chesapeake and turn them over to British authorities. Secretary of the Navy Smith immediately investigated the charges. He went down to the Washington Naval Yards and talked to the four men in bow. He found out that these men were American citizens by birth and that they had been impressed into the British Navy against their will. As far as Secretary of the Navy Smith was concerned, the British must be mistaken. There were no British deserters aboard the Chesapeake, only American citizens, and that was the answer that Secretary of the Navy Smith gave to Vice Admiral Berkeley. No more was said about the issue, and in late June, the Chesapeake, under the command of Captain James Barron, prepared to go to sea. The Chesapeake was a new ship. She was so new that her guns were not properly placed for action. But Captain Barron felt that by the time he reached his destination, he would have his ship ready for anything. The Chesapeake now got under a full spread of sail, poked her brow sprint east and cut for the Atlantic. The southwest breeze dotted Chesapeake Bay with white caps. The topmost shrouds sang a song of adventure. The ship stopped at Norfolk, Virginia and took on additional stores. Instead of having the stores stowed below, Captain Barron allowed them to clutter the deck, feeling that they would have plenty of time to store them below deck after they got underway. Captain Barron was a little lax in his command, and it might be added that this was not a smart thing to do. This was 1807. The world was in turmoil. Napoleon had plunged Europe into a series of wars, and England and France were fighting for their very existence. It was a time when the cannon settled matters and not diplomacy. Eventually, the Chesapeake got underway for the Mediterranean. 
As Captain Barron looked back at the wake of his ship, he could see the low Virginia coast becoming a pencil-thin line. All hands except the watch were piped to supper, and the voyage began to fall into a routine. The next day, they picked up a favorable breeze from the south, and the Chesapeake rolled gently as she plowed through the blue water. No land was now in sight. On the horizon ahead, towering white clouds reached almost to the heaven. The work of securing the stores went ahead, and the Marines on board drilled on the afterdeck. Suddenly from the main top, the lookout shouted, Sail ho! Where away, asked the officer of the watch. Board on the port bow, sir. And a moment later, the lookout added, she's under full sail and closing fast on our course. What do you make her out to be, asked the officer. She appears to be a British frigate. The Chesapeake held her course. The sailing master called Captain Barron and informed him of a ship bearing down on them. The sailing master, standing at Captain Barron's side, put a telescope to his eye and studied the newcomer closing on their position. She's a Britisher, all right. If you like, sir, we can put more sail on if you wish. But Captain Barron chose not to do so. The watch struck the Chesapeake's bell six times. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon. The stranger was now about a half a mile away as the breeze rippled out her Union Jack. Then all of a sudden, a puff of white smoke hid the bow chaser on the Britisher. A cannonball skipped over the ocean and made a series of harmless-looking geysers far front of the Chesapeake. His Majesty's ship, Leopard, has just fired a shot across the bow of the Chesapeake. This is a direct order telling you that the ship that has fired the shot wants you to stop. And if you do not stop, the next shot he fires will go through your bow. Captain Barron gave the command to heave to to the sailing master. Man the topsails. Let's see what she wants. What Captain Barron should have done was to beat the drums and call the crew to general quarters. But he must have been startled by the cannon shot, as all he did was to stand on deck and glare at the Britisher. Both ships sent men aloft to reef sail. In a few minutes, the two frigates were hove to. Both ships were wallowing in the trough of the sea. The helmsman on the British ship Leopard eased his ship a close 40 yards in. As the crew on the Chesapeake looked across the way, they could see that the Tampions were not in the cannons of the British ship. The Tampions are the wooden plugs that are kept in the muzzles of the cannons while the ship is at sea to keep the dampness of the sea and the wash of the sea out of the barrel. They are usually removed only before battle. This was a sign that could mean death. The truth was that 50 guns of the British ship were loaded and ready to fire. A longboat was lowered from the Britisher. A half a dozen ordinary seamen pulled a British naval lieutenant to the American ship. On deck, 
the British lieutenant saluted the American flag, the officer of the deck, and then Captain Barron. The British officer stood like a ramrod and unbuttoned his spick and span blouse. He handed Captain Barron a letter. And then he said, Captain Price Humphreys of His Majesty's ship, Leopard, sends his respects and a message to you, sir. Captain Barron looked at his officers. Then he coughed. <clears throat> Kindly come below for a glass of wine, he suggested. I must decline your thoughtful invitation, sir, commented the young lieutenant as his eyes riveted back on the envelope. Captain Barron then took the envelope, opened it, and began reading. As he read the message, his face flushed to a deep red. The message said that Captain Humphreys of the Leopard demanded the four seamen who had once served in the King's Navy. As he finished the note, the young lieutenant spoke up and said, Captain Humphreys hopes you will not make him use force to take the deserters, sir. Captain Barron excused himself, went below to his cabin, and began writing a reply to the British. For 40 minutes, the British lieutenant stood on the main deck waiting. The crew of the Chesapeake was uneasy, yet there were no orders nor any preparations made to get ready to fight. Finally, Captain Barron reappeared with his reply to the Britisher. The young lieutenant took the message, saluted Captain Barron, and returned to his ship, the Leopard. Captain Barron's letter to Captain Humphrey of the Leopard was a letter of refusal. With the British returning to the Leopard, the peaceful work aboard the Chesapeake went on. The crew continued touching up the paintwork, and from the galley below came the clatter of dishes and the sounds of sea songs chanted by men off watch. The officers of the Chesapeake, however, kept a leery eye on the Leopard. As Lieutenant Smith looked out across the water at the Leopard, he saw it swinging lazily alongside of the Chesapeake at about the distance of a pistol shot. Surely he could not be mistaken. The muzzle of one of the forward guns of the Leopard was slewing around and coming to bear upon the Chesapeake. Probably they were just exercising. But there, there was another and another gun. They were all doing the same thing as if they were moved by one command. Lieutenant Smith's face went blanch. What could it mean? But one thing, he whirled, and as he was about to yell to Captain Barron, he could scarce believe his eyes. There was a burst of white smoke with that vivid red dash of flame from the center, accompanied by a thunderous roar. The forward gun of the Leopard's main battery had opened fire on the Chesapeake. There was a crash just abaft of the break of the forecastle. A great splinter, fully six feet long, whirled across the deck and struck a man who had been painting the bulwarks. He fell to his knees, arose and fell again. He shrieked out in fright and agony. His shoulder and one arm were almost torn away. Feet to quarters, yelled Lieutenant Smith, and the drummer began his beat. Up from below the men came. To quarters, to quarters was the command. Everything was in confusion. The men gathered at their useless guns. Hither and thither rushed officers and midshipmen. Green hands stood about gawking. Some of the men were overcome by fear and the suddenness of danger. Where were the matches, fuses, priming horns, 
and the powder for the cannons of the Chesapeake. They were locked up in the ship's magazine, and the keys to the magazine were in Captain Barron's desk. Captain Barron started for his desk to get the keys, and as he headed toward his cabin, another shot from the Leopard struck the Chesapeake fair in the bulwark. Hammocks and the contents in them were thrown about. Men were wounded, and the Chesapeake had yet to fire a shot in return. Matches, powder, give us something with which to fight, roared the men. Another deadly broadside struck the helpless Chesapeake. Blocks and spars fell from aloft. Then one of the guns of the Chesapeake was finally made ready. If only they had a match with which to light the charge. Suddenly from the entrance of the deck house ran Lieutenant Allen. His jaws were set and his eyes were glaring. He tossed between his hands like a juggler a red-hot flaming coal. Here, sir, cried one of the gunner's mates. For God's sake, here, sir, this one is prime. Just as Lieutenant Allen reached forward with his coal, a shot from the leopard struck the opening of the port. The man who had just spoken was hit full in the breast. Five of the eight men surrounding the cannon fell to the deck. All were wounded by the murderous fire. But Lieutenant Allen dropped his flaming coal upon the breech of the gun and pushed it into place with his scorched and blackened hand. It was the only reply that the Chesapeake was to make to the Englishman's dastardly gun practice. For the next 15 minutes, the Leopard fired steadily by division into the side of the Chesapeake. The Chesapeake was full of groans, shrieks, and cursing as Captain Barron came through the hatchway with the keys to the powder magazine. He looked about him, and seeing the carnage on deck, gasped. The thought that must have flashed through his mind must have been the uselessness of resistance, the terrible death and destruction, and the inevitable loss that would surely follow. Resting himself upon the officers that had grouped about him, he raised both hands above his head with his palms opened and outstretched and ordered faintly, Haul down the flag. A sailor standing nearby caught the words and sprung to the hilliards and rang down the flag. The stars and stripes came fluttering down and the leopard ceased her murderous work. Now the British sent another boarding party to the Chesapeake. And as they boarded her for the second time, they saw men weeping like babies, wounded men being carried below. Curses and imprecations were hurled at them. The young lieutenant from the Leopard now returned. He was ushered to Captain Barron, who was slightly wounded. The lieutenant saluted and said, Captain Price Humphreys expresses his regrets for the action you forced upon him, sir. I must now take the four seamen I sought earlier. May I inquire how many men were killed and wounded, if you please, sir? The officers of the Chesapeake, enraged over the attack, as well as with Captain Barron's conduct, handed the young British lieutenant their swords, hilt first. I must decline for my captain, said the young lieutenant. He wants the four men, not a surrender. Would you please line up the crew and give me a correct list of your seamen, sir? While the beaten Americans lined up on the deck of the wrecked ship, 
the surgeon's mate reported that three men were dead and 18 were badly wounded. Some of the 18, he felt, would surely die. Shortly thereafter, four American sailors, white with fear, climbed over the side of the beaten Chesapeake with the British lieutenant. Later on, the fate of the four was found out. One man was hanged above the deck of the ship from which he had deserted, while the other three were lashed on their backs with a cat-o'-nine-tails in front of the rest of the British crew. The badly disabled Chesapeake limped slowly back to Norfolk, Virginia. She was flying no colors, and her hand pumps were laboriously being worked by the crew to keep her afloat. The people of the United States became inflamed when they heard the news of the Chesapeake affair. The people throughout the country wore armbands of mourning and women dressed in black. Newspapers screamed for a call to arms and the Navy looked into the situation closely. Captain Barron, hitherto known as a brave and capable officer, was dishonored and relieved from all command and sentenced to five years retirement without pay. The charge, not having his ship ready for action. But what about what the British had done? The United States government protested bitterly to the British, but England refused to talk about the incident. They wouldn't even discuss the matter. Well, why didn't the United States go to war over the incident then? There were many reasons. One was that Congress was not in session at that time, and by the time that Congress did assemble, tempers had time to cool. Another reason definitely was that the United States had nothing with which to fight a war. We were just an infant nation at that time, and we did not have a great army or navy. But one thing is for certain about the Chesapeake affair. The impressment of our men and this murder on the high seas by the British brought the United States one step closer to war with England.